Purple Blurb and CMS Colloquium uh, presentation tonight. Um, the Purple Blurb series uh, started uh, about uh, six years ago and uh, was made to create the space for presentation and reading of uh, digital writing, very broadly considered. Uh, work in video, work with video games, um, uh, all sorts of work that engage writing, the literary, uh, in digital media. And um, uh, occasionally, uh, we also, um, uh, even though this is a, a series that's created to um, open up an alternative space and allow for things that uh, uh, typical academic talks would not, occasionally we get to uh, connect and converge with the CMS Colloquium series. Um, uh, that that uh, 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 happened tonight. Um, I want to mention, I want to thank the Angus and McDonald Fund for its support of the Purple Blurb series um, and um, CMS and Writing Humanistic Studies. And I also want to mention that we are going to have an additional uh, Purple Blurb event on December 10th, which was not on the um, announced uh, schedule for the semester. So I'm going to hand out uh, some flyers. Um, if you could hand those back. Um, we are going to be hosting Al Phil Reese from the Kelly Writers House at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's going to speak about his experiences teaching modern poetry to 34,000 students online. Um, so um, hopefully you can make it on December 10th as well. So thank you very much again for coming tonight. Um, and I'm really pleased to introduce Tracy Fullerton, um, who joins us here today to speak about uh, Walden, a game, and some of her other um, practice in uh, the creation of video games. She's an experimental game designer, professor, and director of the Game Innovation Lab at the USC School of Cinematic Arts, where she holds the Electronic Arts Endowed Chair in Interactive Entertainment. Um, this Game Innovation Lab um, is a design research center, and it's produced uh, several independent games that uh, many or all of you have heard about. Cloud, Flow, Darfur is Dying, uh, The Misadventures of P.B. Winterbottom, and uh, The Night Journey, which is particularly interesting in an M MIT context because it's a collaboration with uh, Bill Viola, who is a McDermott Award winner. Um, and uh, I don't know if anyone here got to see his uh, presentation uh, perhaps three years ago. Um, but uh, in any case, you'll learn a little bit uh, about the night journey perhaps as well tonight. Um, so Tracy is also author of uh, a widely used and influential book, Game Design Workshop, A Play-Centric Approach to Creating Innovative Games. So thanks very much, and I'll hand it over to Tracy, who I'd like you to welcome with me. Thanks, thanks, Nick. Thanks so much for asking me to come and being so persistent um, with my crazy schedule um, and making it happen. So uh, this is actually my first visit or official visit uh, to MIT. So it's it's really nice to be here. I wore my purple blurb uh, shirt. It's not an official purple blurb shirt, but I thought it might be appropriate for you. Um, <laughs> It is, okay. It's my purple blurb shirt, yes. Uh, so um, I'm going to actually talk, um, uh, I'm going to talk about Walden, as promised, but I'm also going to talk, uh, as, as Nick mentioned, about some of my, my previous work. Um, but Walden, uh, just to sort of set the scene here um, for that work, uh, began for me about uh, 10 years ago, uh, right after I'd 
had to close my game company, Spider Dance. Um, uh, it was about 2002, and the kind of lingering shock of 9-11 combined with my own sort of sense that uh, I needed a change sent me on a 10,000-mile road trip around the country, uh, visiting spots that uh, intrigued me for one reason or another. Um, as I was driving, I was re- not while I was driving, but as I was traveling, uh, I was rereading Walden. And um, so, of course, I took the opportunity to, to, to visit uh, the pond. I have a lot of family, actually, here in this, this area, uh, and I'd been there many times before. But this time I was there on a day when the pond was um, strangely silent, um, kind of a day like today, uh, but it had been raining in the morning. And um, I was damp and kind of dismal, and so no one was out uh, on the water. Um, And I had it basically um, to myself. Uh, It was quiet in that way that kind of a a damp, rainy wood is. Um, And as I was leaving, um, having seen no one the entire time I was there, um, I stopped at the replica of Thoreau's house that's that's in the parking lot. Um, And the door was sort of uh, partially open, and I could see a silhouette of... Uh, the author sitting by the fireplace reading. Uh, it was so still and quiet that I thought it was a dummy. And um, so without asking permission, um, I simply put my foot on the, the doorstep and walked in. Uh, and the dummy turned to me and said, Greetings, traveler, and scared the crap out of me. Um, really, I hadn't talked to anybody all morning. Um, but we proceeded to have a very nice conversation about Thoreau and his experiment at the pond. Richard Smith, the dummy, uh, uh, was actually, he's actually a historian who works at the, at the pond. Uh, and he regularly create, recreates Thoreau in a kind of um, living museum style. Uh, and that night, after talking with Richard at length, uh, I wrote in my notebook, I'd like to make a game about Thoreau's experiment, but I don't know how to do it. And so like a lot of ideas that I write down and I put aside, uh, I just kind of forgot about it and went on with uh, getting back to my life uh, and really changing what I was doing. So I, I, ha- I left the commercial game industry. And over the next five years, I worked on building an academic program in games at USC where our focus was on developing experimental gameplay. Uh, and during those, those five years, I was involved with a number of projects, uh, most notably uh, projects like Cloud and The Night Journey, both of which had very, very difficult design problems at their core. Um, so Cloud is, for those of you who haven't played it, um, a, a game without any conflict in it. Um, essentially, you play a young boy who's trapped in the hospital. He dreams of flying and making, cloud, making friends with the clouds. Uh, we... Uh, you know, we worked really hard on that, and I think we came to a successful, really enjoyable play style that had very little direct conflict in it. Um, I'm going to talk more, actually, about uh, the night journey, first because Nick asked me to, um, and second because it has had a strong influence on the way that I think about design and the way that I think about games and the way that I think about process, uh, and really also because, for me, it was a key that unlocked my confidence as a designer to take on the problem of Walden. So the project was conceived, um, as Nick has already said, uh, by media artist Bill Viola. And um, uh, Bill, you know, obviously is a, is a tremendous artist. Uh, he had this uh, 
uh, notion of a game about the spiritual journey. I don't know that he had, you know, very much idea about what he meant by the game part, um, but he certainly had a very, very strong vision for what he meant by the spiritual journey part of that, that equation. Um, so, you know, for those of you who may not be deeply familiar with Bill's work, um, it's very precise and very slow. It de- deals with sort of these primal themes um, and, and often spends a lot of time looking very closely at the surface of something to understand the depth of what's underneath. It's almost the antithesis of how you might describe modern gameplay, right? I mean, it's slow and it's intellectual and it's, it, you know, it's, it's precise and it's, you know, it has all of these um, visual qualities of uh, um, uh, beauty that you just need to spend the time to look at and it will sort of unveil itself to you. Sorry, I keep touching that. Um, his work has been described... Uh, but as the pursuit of enlightenment through attention to transcendent experience. Um, so not, not a big challenge, I guess, you know, as a game designer to come in and try to make a game with someone with that reputation. Um, the design goal that we set ourselves was to evoke this sense of the, the journey of enlightenment through the mechanics of the, the experience. Um, and I, say, I, I focus on this because when Bill first began working on, on the project, it was really more of, um, had a lot of influence of texts. There were many texts that were um, uh, inspirations and themes, texts from Rumi and Ryokin and um, uh, St. John of the Cross, for example, is the opening quote of the piece. Um, and there was a lot of discussion about how the text was going to be in the piece. Um, and as we began to work together, I feel like what, what I, my contribution was to say, let's understand these texts as how they inform the mechanic of the game, the activity of the game, right? And, and um, to sort of question how the form of a game, the aesthetic form of a game, um, might actually join the tradition of discussion about the spiritual journey which is so, you know, sort of beautifully constructed in, like, illustrated texts, for example, um, how, how a game might actually stand alongside those sort of beautifully illustrated examples of, of the archetypal spiritual journey. Um, some of the interesting things that came right up uh, in the foreground were the tension between traditional linear media, which is what Bill tr- typically works in, uh, and procedural media. So these are actually drawings that Bill made while we were working on the project. And the top drawing is a picture of how he sees the game world, um, which you notice is very continuous and, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a place you can, you can wander in. Uh, underneath it, he's drawn the video, um, how he sees the video construct for the world. And you notice it's very procedural. It's a matrix, Right. Well, if I was to draw that, what's interesting is I might have flipped those, right? I might have seen the video portion of this game as being very linear and, and very seamless, uh, whereas I look at the game and I see it as very procedural and, and you know, uh, sort of um, you know, made up of many uh, interesting dynamics, right? So we, we all, in our own way, understand the procedurality of the medium that we're deeply involved in. Um, and so what's interesting is coming together as a game designer and a media designer, we had to reconcile that at every step along the way. 
One of the ways that we started was by taking Bill's library of um, prior work um, and breaking it down into that matrix, right? Um, categorizing it thematically um, by not only subject matter, but also the sort of visual components of the pieces. And then, in our own way, as game designers, beginning to build the linear media back up into three-dimensional spaces that we could um, develop from. So this is, for example, a recreation of a scene in the woods that we then built as a three-dimensional environment. But first, we recreated it from the pans and the motions and the cuts uh, across that um, uh, pre-existing wood. Uh, Here's some more of the ocean. This is actually a final screenshot from a part of uh, from a, a scene in the woods that combines both three-dimensional and linear media in, in this screenshot here. So the, the creation of the world was a long, uh, intensive process, um, and it, it, during it, um, I think I learned a lot from Bill about uh, expression through place. So he, he, you know, he says, sense of place, this is a quote from him, has always been a primary uh, importance in his work. And um, when he thinks about it, he thinks about it as uh, having a sort of energy, a kind of raw material for the human psyche to latch onto and begin this sort of creative process. And I find this very interesting. Of course, there's lots of discussion in the video game world about narrative um, as being embedded in places, architectural um, spaces, right? And Henry Jenkins, in fact, wrote one of the sort of um, uh, foundational articles about that uh, when he was here. Uh, and I find, I find this very fascinating because uh, story is one thing, but uh, emotion and uh, uh, something for the player to uh, understand as part of the uh, thematic negotiation that they have with a piece is another. And that is something that's always been deeply part of, of Bill's work. Um, as we worked through these mechanics I was discussing, um, we talked a lot about just how we could abstract something that is as deeply personal and yet as um, sort of archetypal as is the spiritual journey into very, very simple to learn um, game mechanics. And I say I stress that they should be simple because this game was always intended for installation, for people to come up to um, in a, a museum or a gallery without any prior experience with games um, and be able to pick up the controller and just start playing um, without really uh, much instruction. By the way, we found that's a really hard nut to crack. Uh, but which I'll talk about later. Um, but so the kinds of mechanics that we began to look at are very simple. The first one is in, in almost every single 3D um, virtual environment or game, and that is exploration. Um, uh, this is just so common uh, that what, in order to make it new for our game, what we did was we slowed the player down. Um, we wanted to make an environment that was interesting enough visually that you slowed down to look at it. And I'll show you um, a little piece of it, but the, the basic way we did this was by building a filter that um, captures the last frame, um, does some post-processing on it, and then uh, uh, composites that with the next frame. Uh, 
giving it not only the post-processing effects, but also um, if you move too quickly, the difference between those two frames becomes this sort of pull between them, this kind of weird time lapse um, uh, between them. So only by slowing down and settling do you really actually ever see the world, which is part of the the theme. Um, One of the other core mechanics was this notion of reflection, um, that when one reflected upon the world, that it would show you, sort of flower, sort of like open itself up to you and show you its sort of uh, its underlying essence. Um, so reflection is something that you must choose to do. It's an active mechanic. Um, so you actually you select to reflect. And when you do so, you let go of your control of the camera. And then uh, another sort of piece of media will start to meld with the the real the real time three D world, and as you, as that happens, as the visual transformation takes place, um, your character uh, stats, if you will, under un, uh, underlying the um, the game also change. In fact, you begin to move more quickly, and you can actually uh, glide and take off, and sometimes soar uh, above the world, depending on on how uh, expert if you will, you, you play the game. So that reflection becomes a, a, a plays into your transformation as a character. Um, the last um, important mechanic is that of the cycle of loss and rebirth. So when you first enter the world of the night journey, you're actually falling from the sky into the center of a world. Um, you can see very far while you're falling, but once you land in the world, you can, you're sort of at the center of this series of canyons. They're actually a mandala that have been carved out of the center of the world. Um, and there's a great tree that you land next to. Those are your landmarks. You can go to the desert or to the ocean, to the um, mountains or to the forest uh, and explore. And each one of these areas has a, has a theme. Uh, you can explore, but always at the edges of this world, there's a darkness um, coming in on you, sort of closing in on you. And that is just the time that you have. Um, reflection causes that darkness to push out. So not only can you move more quickly, but you, can all, but you also essentially get more time in, in this cycle. Um, but inevitably, at some point, the darkness will close in on you. Uh, and we made that a sort of lingering period of darkness. It's not a um, quick uh, uh, effect because we wanted you to feel that transition. Most games, you know, when you quote-unquote die in a game, um, then you're dead. And maybe you respawn or maybe that's the end. Um, but it's a very quick binary process. Maybe you get to see your body flopping around on the battlefield. But um, what we wanted was you to reflect on the actual process of loss. Um, and so... That is a sort of a, a lengthy period, and when you sleep, you then you dream of the journey that you had, and perhaps you see glimmers of some other parts of another journey. You don't know if it's yours or if, uh, your future or, or someone else's, uh, and you are reborn um, uh, in the world. I'm going to show you some clips so you get a sense of it, those of you who haven't seen it. Um, so let me just fast forward. So 
little hard to get a hold of that. Okay, so as I mentioned, when you first fall into the world, you can see a great distance. This person is turning their head very quickly, so it's very blurry. They settle. There they go. Uh, it, the blur will clear up. You can see the canyons that you're falling down to the right. Um, and very simple instructions come on the screen. We, we try to just have the most minimal instructions. So when the player pl presses reflect, this is the kind of transformation that they'll see. It's different all through the world and thematically linked to the various areas. In the forest, it's the encounter with the other. In the mountains, it's more about the withdrawal into the self. In the um, desert, it's about the emergence of the spirit. And in the ocean, about the submerging of the body. So I want to get on to Walden. So I'm going to speed through this just a little bit. Um, I'll show you towards the end so you can get some sense of the night experience. Okay, so this is, um, this player is now soaring. Um, so they've, they've actually been through uh, quite a bit of the game. So as night falls, this is when the dreams begin. But in the yes, in just because of time, I'm going to cut. To, uh, I'm going to cut that and say uh, I mentioned earlier. It's very difficult to design a game like this for the kind of audience I described. Uh, when we went to playtest it, which is a central part of our process, um, we did a call for um, people who had been to a. Um, museum or gallery in the last six months or were, were a fan of Bill Viola and the other group of people that we did a call for were ex people who were interested in experimental games 
and you couldn't find two more different groups of people in terms of understanding the game controller and how you even navigate a 3D world. So you know, bringing those two, two groups together in an environment that um, had pleasures for both of them was uh, a really big part of the tuning of this particular game. Uh, in the end, that's why we decided to have the very minimal instructions that are on the screen when you fall in. Um, it's interesting because for, obviously, game players, they don't need those at all. Um, and um, for non-game players, they're absolutely essential. We also had to do things like cap the, the camera so that you can never look up at the sky and you can never look down at the ground because the minute that they did that, they just were lost and bumping against things and it was really ugly. Um, but so the, the game is uh, played in installations around the world, but you know, there's a sort of a limited exposure for games that are designed um, for installation. Um, and, um, you know, it's one of the reasons Walden is being designed actually as a game that um, could be for home, to, uh, for play at home. Uh, but we've seen really good results, especially, strangely enough, with very young audiences. Um, kids go sucking into this world and they don't want to come out. This is a young kid who played for half an hour. And I kept trying to say, don't you want to, like, play cloud or something like that? And, and he's like, no, no, this is... He was just completely into it. I couldn't. I didn't understand why. So I can't give this talk without actually. I can't um, uh, go on without acknowledging the core team. Uh, so in addition to Bill Viola, uh, uh, there was a core team at the Game Lab uh, who really put this um, game together from, uh, you know, just a very vague um, early specification through a series of really enlightening and beautiful and wonderful conversations with Bill Viola to to, to really you know figure out what it was. Um, these guys really hung in there and, and, and brought it together. And I also should say uh, that Michael Sweet is here tonight uh, who did the sound design. Um, uh, so, so to really actually bring the feeling of that, of that world uh, together at the end. And it was that core team in many ways that gave me the, um, the, the reminder of that old idea of Walden. Um, really, as we were finishing up production on the night journey, um, you know, I, my mind kind of went back to that old idea, uh, but I'd learned something from Bill. I'd learned something about trusting in process and trusting in your team, and, and the thought that as long as you stayed centered on what attracted you to an idea, um, a difficult idea really, um, that you could, you could find a solution for it, even if you didn't know going in what that solution might look like. So in 2007, when we were um, uh, finishing up, we'd, we'd done the main design work on Night Journey, and we're just doing production work. Uh, I went out and I bought a stack of copies of Walden, and I distributed them uh, around the Game Innovation Lab for everyone to read and take notes in. Uh, and that was our beginning. So um, let's talk about the man himself. Um, Thoreau, until he started keeping a journal in 1837, wasn't, there wasn't much remarkable about him. Uh, he was born in 1817 in Concord, um, where he would spend most of his life. Uh, his family had pencils, they had a pencil factory, um, which, given Thoreau's eventual career as a writer, seemed somewhat appropriate. Uh, he attended Harvard and was a good but not a brilliant student. Um, after graduating, he returned home and, and took a job as a teacher, which he, probably, he promptly quit because he refused to beat the children. 
And at that point, you gotta give, him, give it to him for that, right? At that point, he embarked on a career of walking, thinking, and getting to know Concord better than probably anyone has done before. Um, supported by a series of odd jobs, um, such as building fences and surveying land, um, Thoreau was probably best known to his neighbors as that fool who burned down the woods because of an unf- unfortunate camping incident. Um, in 1837, though, um, shortly after befriending Ralph Waldo Emerson, he began keeping a journal, uh, apparently at Emerson's provocation. And this lifelong work, um, which included all of his observations about Concord, his environment, um, the details of the wildlife and the terrain, the ponds and the people and the animals of the area, these observations would form the basis of his published writings. And for the scores of scholars and scientists and philosophers and artists and environmentalists and otherwise who've used Thoreau's work for the basis of other related works. Um, For example, uh, I don't know if you know this, but within the past few years, an NSF-funded study has used his notes on blooming dates to understand the effects of global warming um, in this area. Um, Emerson Thoreau were famously great friends um, and part of a larger circle of intellectuals in Concord, Uh, Emerson's house sat on the outskirts of that town, which in hindsight, of course, seems home to a statistically improbable number of great writers. And his house was at what might be seen as the liminal edge of the society before you entered the woods that Thoreau would wander in for hours every day. And while Concord was certainly a town and not a city, it was civilization enough for Thoreau to wish to escape it. And so in 1845, Emerson allowed him to build a cabin on his woodlot a piece of land uh, on the north shore of Walden Pond um, to conduct what Thoreau called an experiment uh, in living. And there were a lot of such experiments going on at the time, so not too much attention was paid to Thoreau's. Um, Besides Emerson, some poets um, and writers visited Henry in the cabin, but for the most part, he was free to live as simply as he liked, uh, coming and going from town to the solitude of the woods, with Emerson's home at there at the dividing point, sort of a way station and lending library all in one. And as I've mentioned, I've been thinking about this idea about how you might make Walden into a game for a very long time. When you read the book, it's kind of a qualitative description of the outcome of the experiment that Thoreau made. It's loose narrative, very loose, relates the goals and the structure of the experiment, which were to live as simply as he could to determine uh, what he felt were the essentials of life. And he describes the first year of that experiment in great detail, beginning in the summer, leading to the fall and winter, and eventually spring of that year. The basics of his life, how he lived, built his home, his surroundings, the pond, uh, all of you know, his visitors, they're all the focus of the narrative. Um, and as we know ourselves, mundane tasks often let our minds wander and make interesting connections, And Thoreau was no different. So while he planted his bean field, he pondered on how many of his fellow farmers became bogged down by planting larger and larger fields just to make more money, to build larger houses, uh, and then needed more money to upkeep those houses. He finds that most men are so occupied with the factitious cares and superfluously coarse labors of life that its finer fruits cannot be plucked by them. So... Thoreau went to the woods, as he says, to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, etc., etc. We all know that part of the quote. Uh, But he goes on more clearly to define his goals as uh, reducing life to its lowest terms and, if it proved to be mean, 
to get the whole and genuine meanness of it and publish its meanness to the world. Or, if it were sublime, uh, to know, know it by experience and to be able to give a true account of it. I suspect that we all know on which side the equation Thoreau found his answer. But for our players, um, we wanted to leave the question open and allow them to find their own path through the experiment. As a game designer, the way that I often start thinking about any world that I want to make, um, as I showed in that, that diagram with the night journey, where I would think more procedurally about it, um, I like to try to understand um, and model the underlying systems. So later, of course, these underlying systems will be uh, wrapped in animations and sound, and they'll be brought to life um, to lure the players into their exploration of the system. Um, and this is actually one of the things that drew me, uh, I think, originally to Thoreau's writings because he was an ap- amateur naturalist as well as a poet and philosopher. And he describes the systems of the world in great detail, merging the scientific and the sublime, the personal and the universal, the natural and the aesthetic. His book is that rare text that stands fully in the arts and in the humanities as, as it does in, the, in the, the sciences. And to me, it's proof that the way we've divorced these domains today is arbitrary and unhelpful to learning about them. But first, so in order to, uh, to kind of get to the sublime, if you will, our team needed to understand that basic system as Thoreau posited it. Uh, in the first chapter of the book, um, he, he specifies four basic necessaries of life, which are food, fuel, shelter, and clothing. Only when we have obtained these things are we able to adventure on life, he says. Beyond these necessities and interwoven in finding them for himself are the rest of the topics of the book, including inspiration found while reading, in solitude, in the sounds of the environment, uh, in his visitors, human and otherwise. Um, And these are actually screenshots just to contextualize of some of the uh, 2D rough prototypes that we made while trying to figure out how these um, basic necessaries of life would interoperate in, in the system, trying to discover, as it were, the rules of our world, which really came down to a tension between sustaining life and seeking inspiration or, or throws sublime. Um, and as we've all experienced in our own lives, I'm sure, um, this usually comes down to a couple of tough issues. How much time do we really need um, to spend taking care of those basic needs and how we choose to spend our leisure time? Thoreau felt pretty strongly that the simpler we could make our lives, the more instinctively we would tend towards the sublime and away from the grind, so to speak. And certainly that was true for him. But would it be true for, say, you, um, if you were to play out the experiment? Um, so in designing our system, it was important to us that even as we abstracted the elements of life in Thoreau's world, and we also allowed for real variation and deviation in how player, the player could choose to spend their time. Um, this, is a, um, this is how we sort of uh, figured it out in the, uh, in the current version of the system. Um, and that is to understand that uh, at the center of our system was energy, or what Thoreau called the vital heat. Um, And the effort that we humans need to put into maintaining that vital heat. So food, fuel, shelter, and clothing. Oh, wow. You see those arrows as gray or or blue? Hmm. On my screen, they're blue. Odd. Um, uh, So we have to put this effort into maintaining that uh, vital heat. 
Um, and of course, if we let those um, needs fall by the wayside, if we let them sort of um, uh, diminish, then they will drain our energy. So if we don't have enough food and fuel and um, shelter and clothing, then that lack starts to drain uh, our vital heat. Um, in our game, time actually revitalizes energy while also wearing on our basic needs. Um, what we're really after, of course, is that sublime inspiration, which Thoreau finds to, through attention to things like reading, sound, solitude, and visitors. Of course, time also wears on our moments of inspiration. So we need to keep attending to those things as well. Um, we might also be lured to take things like jobs, um, such as Thoreau did sometimes, um, to make our lives easier. But the money that we might use to um, purchase those basic necessities also tends to attract us towards purchasing luxuries um, to, say, make a better house, upgrade our house, and things like this, right? So that money becomes sort of a... Um, uh, a liability in some ways to us, right? Uh, in our game world, um, you can do things like run around the world, row around the world, ex and explore the woods. Um, and um, you can also uh, uh, rest and walk. All of these things, um, some of them take effort. Some of them actually uh, will restore your energy, like walking and resting will restore your energy. But all those things actually add to this notion of exploration. Um, and in, in the woods are opportunities for inspiration. So uh, while you're actually doing all your basic needs and trying to you know, keep your energy up and all of this stuff and exploring the woods, if your, energy, if your inspiration is high, then you also have a greater chance of, of finding what we call arrowheads. Um, and arrowheads are kind of... Um, what Thoreau thought of, he, he, he actually was famously um, good at finding uh, arrowheads and Indian artifacts, probably just because he looked really hard. Uh, but he, he was famously good at just finding them in the woods. Uh, and he thought of them as sort of the relics of, you know, he, 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 was, he thought of them as potentially like the relics of other people's, uh, you know, moments of inspiration. So we use them metaphorically in our game to... Um, uh, trigger um, special moments from the actual writing of Walden, like the War of the Ants, things that uh, people put, um, uh, tend to remember from the book. Um, so each arrowhead is a moment of note from Walden that actually um, fills your journal, actually goes into your game journal. Um, and that journal grows and you carry it along with you. And so the more that you fill, the, the richer... Uh, the more that you can find these moments of inspiration, the richer your journal becomes. And you begin to actually build a procedural narrative of your own virtual experiment that you take along with you um, and that, um, in the end, you will be able to keep. So this, um, there's one last connection, and that is that your inspiration also um, tends to... Uh, uh, keep your, heat, your energy from diminishing. We realized this later on that uh, in order to keep the, gr the game from becoming a grind, we needed to have this connection between inspiration and energy because it's that kind of intellectual high you get when, you're, you're, when things are going really right and you're really thinking clearly and then all of a sudden you feel like you can do it all. 
Uh, and that's what we wanted the game to feel like. Um, so there's no winning and losing in this experiment, um, though, of course, each player can judge by their own standards. Um, the environment in the game will provide feedback away, uh, about the way that you're living, um, and we hope uh, will influence your sensibility about the, expe- uh, the experience. Um, so in much the same way that Thoreau's writings of Walden are a form of objective uh, correlative regarding his own experiment, our game will become richer and filled with more potential as you have a life in balance and less rich, more mundane, as you live the life of Thoreau's fellow townsmen, whose misfortune, he said it was, to have inherited farms and um, houses and barns and cattle and farming tools because these things are more easily acquired than got rid of. So, for example, the world will literally fade, and I'm not sure it's going to work on this screen, but if you can see, it's fading a bit. Um, uh, It'll become less lustrous if you spend too much time involved in daily tasks. And conversely, uh, if you're able to balance your basic needs and your more sort of ephemeral needs, the world become more lush and more filled with potential discoveries that build up your relationship with this virtual nature. Um, It's an interesting problem to use the world itself as a meter because it requires players to exercise quite a bit of visual acuity. Um, It's a really rarely developed ability to reflect on the subtleties um, of how the world is changing around them, which players may or may not have. Um, In early playtests that we've had, players say they feel like the world is changing. They're often not able to articulate how. Um, They just feel more positive or negative about it which is, you know, what we're really going for. So um, it's a good sign, and as we move forward, we're certainly going to tune that um, so that um, it gets to a point where players can notice the visual granularity um, that's changing. The style of the world is actually a kind of romantic realism. Um, We all know that Thoreau did his adventuring on life um, only a couple miles from town, and he wasn't really roughing it. Um, He sat at the outskirts of society, and he observed through his lens of idealism. So in terms of the feel of the piece, we knew from the beginning that we wanted to find this sort of romantic realism. Um, We looked at early autochrome uh, photography, uh, as well as a more painterly style. Uh, And in the end, it's kind of a a merge of these feelings. Uh, additionally, the objects that made up our, of our, our, our world had to reflect Thoreau's own observations because on top of the underlying dynamics of the philosophy, we knew we were going to create this immersive simulation of Walden Woods. And this is a sort of a parsing of, the, of the, um, uh, some of the words in the book, but we did our own uh, codings looking for the specific uh, plants and animals that he mentions the most. Um, uh, he knew the place well. He never tired of knowing it better, and we wanted our game to be as rich and filled with that kind of detail as possible. Uh, so we actually, the, the plants and the trees and the animals that we have in the game are those that uh, we found him mentioning the most. Um, whether or not that's the uh, you know, most biologically correct, we, we don't know, but it's, it's Thoreau's version in a way. Uh, These are just some of the sheets of all the plants uh, and animals references for um, creating the models. Uh, and in the same sense, 
uh, that, you know, looking at the book made sense for judging what plants and animals to build. Uh, we looked at Thoreau's own surveying work to aid in our construction of the terrain. So we combined his um, uh, survey of the pond with modern U.S. geographical data and a lot of massaging of details to make it feel right to a modern player who spent a lot of time at the pond. And um, that was our method for creating the basic uh, layout. The highlighted area in green is the playable area of the game. Um, so the, the woods themselves are the, the main play area. There's a section of Concord, and Emerson's home uh, is in the game as it was in reality, um, the liminal point between the woods and society. It's, uh, uh, it's possible in our game to survive, to live entirely in the woods without any reliance uh, on the comforts of, of, of Concord. Um, this is a resource map which details where all of the edible plants uh, are in the game, and uh, in the upper right corner where all of the um, seasons are ripe, this is a little more readable. Um, so basically when you begin the game in summer, which is period four here on the bottom, uh, many plants and animals are, uh, many plants are available for, for picking, uh, but as you move into fall and then uh, certainly into winter, um, it became uh, quite hard to just live by foraging. Um, so if you haven't made plans for the winter by, say, planting your beans and harvesting them and storing them, or if you aren't willing to go into town and purchase them and take odd jobs to pay for it, uh, then you could be in some trouble. Um, uh, but uh, it's, you know, it's entirely possible to live in the woods if you plan properly. Um, but if you um, spend all of your time foraging for wood and you know, uh, foraging for food and chopping wood and, and you know, mending your own clothes, then you're going to have less time for the sublime, right? So this is kind of the inherent problem. Um, so in the game, what we've done is we've um, I've abstracted the tasks of survival to those directly related to uh, Thoreau's uh, message of you know food, fuel, shelter, and clothing. And the sort of baseline, the ones you can find uh, in the woods with very little effort, are things like you know just picking berries, um, you know collecting driftwood, camping, um, things like this. You can mend your own clothes, um, but these things eventually start taking a lot of time. And so you, for efficiency's sake, you want to do things like borrow tools or or buy tools or um, you know spend the time to plant beans. Uh, Etc. or go into town and have your mother do your mending for you, um, which you can do in the game. Um, and if you get into the cycle, you might actually find yourself earning money and then purchasing some of these things to, to supplement the things that you can um, find or make yourself in the forest. And of course, that's the, that's the little um, uh, lure that we've set for It's a trap that we've set for you, is that the more efficient you become, uh, in a sense, the more you... Um, uh, the more time you wind up spending uh, just fulfilling your basic needs. Uh, early in the game, we expect uh, your time to look like this. Um, and it's much like Thoreau's time did in his first summer. Um, you spend a lot of time just trying to stay alive, um, very little time um, on the sublime. Uh, and then as you start to learn what the efficiencies are, we hope that you're able to balance this out. Um, we hope that also some of the sort of, there are other more subtle lures that we've planted for the player. They're not the kind of game-like lures that we're, that we're most uh, used to. So gamers are used to 
getting money and going to the store and buying a new stove or whatever and, and you know, becoming more efficient. And that, that's a trap we've set for you. But the other trap we've set for you is that there are going to be these sort of beautiful, interesting things like a richness of sounds that sits around the edge of the world. Uh, there are going to be um, animals that are um, falling past. If you follow them, you will find some of the more interesting spots uh, on the map. Um, so if you follow your curiosity, you'll actually be lured into a different kind of experience. Um, so luckily for us, I think, the game is quite, uh, has a quite a slow pace. So we hope that people will um, move fa- fairly quickly away from the grind that is expected of them of gamers into this um, different kind of pattern where they begin to um, look not only for survival but also for these really rich and beautiful um, experiences in the forest. As I said, though, in the beginning, we wanted to be very clear that you could play the game your own way, right? So while this is maybe a typical day, what we're looking for you, um, late game, you could become a bean farmer, and you could spend all your time growing beans and making money and buying stuff for your, for, your, for your house and you could get a great set of new clothes and you could do anything, you know, you could do all those great things. Or we could, you could go down the, the Waldo Millionaire path where you can um, uh, take all the odd jobs and surveying jobs and millionaire maybe is, an, is a little extreme, penny air, I don't know. Uh, but basically you ha- can have a different relationship uh, to the world. And of course, as I've already mentioned, that will change your relationship to the woods themselves. So while you might be having a great time in town, um, your relationships to the wood will be somewhat poverty stricken. Uh, when you return there, they'll be quite bland and quite dull. And those sort of arrowheads, those poten- moments of potential beauty and, and, and the sublime will be missing for you. Um, so I want to just show you some of the game here. Um, so I should mention I've, we just put music over this, but but Michael Sweet has also come in to do the the uh, sound for this game. We're so excited uh, to have him coming and building a whole procedural landscape uh, soundscape uh, uh, of the game, which maybe next time I show I'll be able to to actually show it. Uh, but so. Thoreau moved to his unfinished home uh, at the pond on Independence Day in 1845, and he spent a good deal of his time that summer finishing work on the cabin as well as planting his bean field. My house, he wrote, is on the side of a hill, immediately on the edge of a large wood, in the midst of a young forest of pitch pines and hickories, and half a dozen rods from the pond to which a narrow footpath led down the hill. As I walk along the stony shore of the pond in my shirt sleeves, though, it is, co- as cool, it is cool as well as cloudy and windy. I see nothing special to attract me. All the elements are unusually congenial to me. I hopefully will not be the narrator. In the winter, he says, I met no one on my walks but frequently tramped eight or ten miles through the deepest snow to keep an appointment with a beech tree or a yellow birch or an old acquaintance among the pines. Thoreau called himself the self-appointed inspector of snowstorms and rainstorms. In any weather, in any hour of the day or night, I have been anxious to improve the nick of time, he says, 
and notch it on my stick too, to stand on the meeting of two eternities, the past and future, which is precisely the present moment, to toe that line. In spring, our prospects brighten on the influx of better thoughts. A single gentle rain makes the grass many shades grainer. I am convinced, he says, by both faith and experience, that to maintain oneself on this earth is not a hardship but a pastime, if we will live simply and wisely. It's a little hard to see on the screen, it's a bit dark. things like reading rocks, which will contain um, texts that inspired Thoreau while he was there. Uh, And all the vegetation and animals can be inspected, um, and you can see what Thoreau wrote about them. Everything that you look at and everything that you sort of handle and do will be recorded in your journal. And again, that becomes part of your sort of procedural uh, version of Walden. lived at the pond for two years, two months, and two days before, as he says, becoming a sojourner and civilized life again. And in our game, uh, a player may uh, play the year that we've uh, actually structured as the main play time, but then uh, they can also continue their stay at Walden for as long as they like, sort of in, in wander mode. I can't really conclude this talk without um, uh, giving a, you know huge props to the team, um, mostly volunteers, um, uh, graduate students, uh, some uh, staff, and 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 friends like Michael who uh, put in so much amazing uh, talent and work. Just because uh, I thought it would be a pretty cool idea to paint this fence. So, uh, with that, I'll I'll take any questions. Well, I have many, but I'm going to put them in my pocket and see who else has some questions to ask. Hello. Hi. Um, so you're saying that uh, a typical uh, gameplay length is, is one uh, year at the pond? Right. So, But that's highly compacted. A, a day in our game is 15 minutes currently. We, we will be tweaking some of these variables. A day in our game is 15 minutes, and each season... Um, 
is six days. We actually have, um, well, it's hard to explain, but our seasons are the four seasons plus some uh, integral seasons that show them changing. Uh, but it's basically one season is six days. Uh, and so it's highly uh, shrunk. Do you envision that uh, a player's interaction with this would be like over a single session? No, like- no, no. I would envision that, you know, it's the kind of thing, I mean, what, you know, you play maybe a half an hour to an hour, and then you would save, you'll be able to save the game, and, and you'll have multiple saves, so you can save it in any, any time you want. So it's not uh, like an installation work like the... No, it's intended for home play, and that's actually one of the lessons we... I mean, I get so many people who ask me, quote-unquote, when Night Journey will be out, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, the thing is, it's kind of been out. <laughs> uh, but they don't perceive it as being... A game is a... People believe they should be able to buy a game, and it isn't out until they can buy it. So this notion of art games where they play in um, installation only becomes really problematic. I don't mean to be cynical, but does uh, this game lead people to believe that they can get the same kind of wisdom and experience that Thoreau achieved through sweat and toil and <laughs> hard work and wet shoes on the cheap? Uh, no, but I mean, you know, he wrote a book, so that's a form of media as well, and I don't think anybody believes they can get that by reading his book. Well, you, you can't get the uh, subtlety or the uh, eloquence of his prose in the double entendres and a lot of the other literary devices that he uses in such effective fashion through a sure. game either. You, you're missing a great part. It was a great literary Absolutely. work as and well. One of my hopes is that this would actually uh, lead younger people to actually read the book. You know? So you know, one of the reasons that I actually started making this is I was playing a game called Animal Crossing with my niece, and it has a very similar kind of a structure, except for it doesn't have the message. Uh, In that particular game, you can upgrade your house, and people are actually trying to get you to go into debt to upgrade your house, and even though you can wander the woods and, and, you know, um, you find all these different animals there, it really isn't the same tone. And so what I was hoping was that, uh, you know, someone who might want to play a game like Animal Crossing would play this perhaps instead and be inspired to then, you know, go and look up Thoreau and find out more about him and, like you say, lead you, right, lead you to the original. But I don't think anybody expects that media takes the place of direct experience. I certainly don't. Um, uh that was kind of the lead into my question too, which is that you know there's this kind of doubling effect where if Thoreau was, I mean, I guess it's also arguable, but if if Thoreau was designing a system or a a book of of, of rules or a, or a worldview by which one could then you know take his his lessons and and apply them to a, a real world experience, you're 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 doing. You're, you're kind of cre- it feels it feels kind of like uh, less uh, a game version of Walden than a Walden version of a game, um, in which like for example like I'm curious I'm always curious like because with art a lot of art that's games, a very Thoreauian quote of it, <laughs> by the way no but it's the thing with that I've seen with a lot of art games which is that or at least in the way that they're talked about which is that there's this kind of meaningful zinger that you can uh, condense the the experience of the game into uh, which like like a forty hour game whatever affective 
things emerge, whatever affective shape it has for those 40 hours, like at the end it's like, oh, this is a game about the paradox of choice. And, and, and there's this kind of like, you know, there's this kind of like, if you play this game, then you get this meaning. And I'm just wondering how much, um, how much it's, it's kind of assumed or how much when you're as developers or as players, we're kind of just assuming that like, you know, this... Uh, and this is also made uh, easy, I think, easier to believe with photorealism and, and the sort of like the footsteps, very discreet footsteps in, in your game, um, that a, a sort of game world depiction of the sublime is a kind of uh, experience of the sublime. And it seems to be that the way you describe, like, I'm curious how you describe like results or, or like, you know, actually the affective quality of playing game because it seems like, for example, when, when, uh, when I hear like game developers saying that, you know, when you ask the players, like they can't really quantify their experience. It's 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 sort of defined by like, like what did I write down? It's sort of defined by like not being a grind or or sort of beauty in the game is is sort of you know like beautiful elements can be like defined by basically being not mechanics or not you know not the the things that are, that games are known to be, and 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 instead they're kind of like these subjective things like. A beautiful tree or a beautiful flower, and so it, it seems to be. I guess what I'm saying is that it seems to be a conversation that is meaningful to people who whose wor- world orientation is already contained within the the things that games offer. And then when you offer something that's not something that a game offers, it's that that sort of like slippage between like the one and the zero of a code is is like the sublime in the game, which is that it's like the unknown. Do I, you know what I mean? I'm not certain uh, which question you want me to answer. Um, because that was a very complex comment, um, but I think I think the the main question is kind of like is this this seems to be to me it strikes me as a game that gamers would find to be profound because it's like anti a lot of things that gamers are used to, and I'm wondering about I guess your audience and whether ah, you think okay. that someone would pick it up. That's and, a concrete one. Yeah. Okay, because I actually thought you were going someplace else, but. Uh, yeah, so typically, as with the night journey, our audience is twofold, right? Certainly, the core audience would be uh, people interested in experimental games. There's no question that that's who we expect would, would play this game primarily. Um, however, um, we've worked very hard to um, have to make the, sim- the, the system simple enough and the access to the system simple enough so that this could be played by people who are not necessarily game players. Um, But, for example, um, maybe someone interested in Thoreau, right? Or or, uh, someone who didn't define themselves as as a game player. Um, It's really really important to me, actually, that this not be limited to that kind of indie game, um, experimental game audience that is already... Uh, kind of self-defined and self-aware and, and understanding of uh, you know what they're they're looking for. I, I want this game to appeal to people who wouldn't necessarily have picked up a game before. So it you know to me, yes, I'm I'm using game tropes. I'm using the grind. I'm using you know reward structures. I hope in a slightly different way. Um, I'm using interface elements just slightly, right, so that people will know how to, how to navigate the world and um, how to use things like the, the, you know, the activities in the game. But I'm trying to keep that light, 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 so that it will 
you know, be attractive to people who aren't necessarily interested in understanding the and min-maxing, for example, the, the system, who just want to have an experience uh, in these, these sort of virtual woods. I didn't get to all of your question, I'm sorry, but it was very long, so. Can you expand a bit on the, um, the arrowheads, uh, the mm-hmm. metaphor there? Is that when you're saying that the, when you collect the arrowhead or you do the arrowhead thing, and it's, is that a mechanic that you're, you're doing, or is it a... So it's, it's a reward. Basically, um, when you are in balance, when you're sort of, um, your inspiration is high and you're not um, dying of fatigue, because there is there's sort of a path where you could just go off of, look, look for only the ephemeral needs and kind of be starving and cold and have no clothes and no shelter. Um, so... If you if you have a life in balance where you've, you've attended to to these things, then the the arrowheads actually appear uh, in the forest as these kind of uh, uh, glimmering artifacts that you can find, uh, and they are these sort of scripted um, special moments that that are taken directly from the book. And I should say that this is a work in progress. And one of the things that's missing from say that walkthrough, and one of the reasons I was trying so. Uh, inadequately uh, to read the text is that the voice of Thoreau uh, will be heard um, throughout the experience, the, the, the words of Thoreau. Hi, Hi. Tracy. Uh, thanks for the talk. It was really interesting. I wanted to get back to the question that was just raised a moment ago about kind of the relationship of, of your game to Thoreau's book, Thoreau's body of work, and, and mm-hmm. kind of transcendentalism. Um, I think it's very humble of you to say that, that you know, your, your game could serve as a kind of a signpost that somebody might play your game and, and through the game become more interested in Thoreau and in his work and maybe ultimately approach what he was talking about in his work. Um, but I think there's something, something else going on, something greater going on also, and I'm, I'm wondering if maybe I can uh, pull the less humble answer to that question out of you, that, that is there a way in which this game doesn't just serve kind of a, a cultural signpost function, a recommender function, well, but actually gets closer to the issue of the natural sublime and, and sort of the, the aims of transcendentalism? I, it, it seems to me that maybe the rhetorical argument that's happening in this structure of rules that you've set up is, is to say games are like religions, they're like philosophies, they're like codes of morals or ethics, they're like these lived experiments that Thoreau personally submitted himself to in that they're systems of rules. And that if you, the player, subject yourself to another person's system of rules, you can actually share in their experience not only vicariously as the reader of a book and sort of appreciating the the masterful prose with which the writer of that book executed his craft, but actually can live by the same rules and, and have some of the same cognitive processes that led them to the insights that they so had. So this is a struggle that I've had internally because obviously this is my own translation, as in, you know, if you wanted to make a film uh, about, you know, this work, you you translate it to another medium. And as a translator, you stand in the middle and you sort of, no matter how hard you try, you, you do, you know, sort of impart your own sensibilities. And, you know, my sensibilities are focusing very much on this structure that he lays out uh, in the beginning of the book for this, for this experiment. And, you know, some people have said to me, but you're missing all the other points. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, and it would be great to make a translation of it that focused on those points. Maybe you could write oh, I don't know, maybe 
uh, music scores uh, or other books. Hey, maybe people have already done that, you know. Um, in fact, maybe it's inspired many other people to do their own investigation about the many facets of this experiment. So, you know, for me, I focused in as a game designer on the parts of the experience that are the most systemic, right, that are about, you know, a kind of code of living, right, and a kind of set of rules, like you say. Um, it's, I think, what attracted me. I think it's why I originally thought this would make an interesting game because when you read it and you are always looking for rules in the world, then they, then, you know, once you read Walden that way, you're like, oh, it just sort of pops out at you. Um, that it has a very loose narrative, but it has a very strong system, you know? Uh, so maybe this is, of all the books that I might choose, I mean, my, my, my father's family is from this area, and so we visited here all the time, and every time we came, we had to get a new book, and we all had, we read, like, all of these books, and, and you know... Walden was first sort of thrust upon me as a young person, not necessarily just picked up curiosity. Uh, but as I grew older, it became more and more interesting. Um, and I think that that was because it has at its core not only this, this, this systemic understanding of the potential of a life well-lived, but also... It's, it, the book itself is actually very humble because he says it's, it might not be for you. It's for me, but it may not be for you, you know? And it also, he doesn't acknowledge it very much, but it has this, this sort of sense of joy and, and this acknowledgement that even though he's, he's so focused on science in, in many ways, he's also focused on science as an, as an art, as an expression of, of human endeavor. So I think it's a really beautiful text, and it was one that I wanted to spend a lot of time with, so I get to. <laughs> yeah. Hi. Um, I was wondering why you chose to do a 3D realistic representation of the game world instead of something a little more abstract. It's a really good question. So, of course, you saw the original prototypes. Uh, there was a like a board game where we were figuring out the resources, and then a whole bunch of two-dimensional games, even one that started to have the look that we might actually go 2D. But because we wanted to have this um, sense of being in the place, uh, the, it was clear on the 2D prototypes, if, if those had sort of sung, if they'd really worked, we might have actually gone down that path, frankly. Um, it's a path I feel more comfortable in. But... Um, it didn't feel right. It didn't feel like trekking through the woods was trekking through the woods. It didn't feel like you were there. It didn't feel like if we'd put those animals in there that they would have felt like they were really there. And it was important. So I'm not a, actually a big proponent of uh, realistic, um, you know, sort of re really realistic uh, visualizations. And in fact, it may not come through on the kind of projector, but it's actually more of a painterly style. It has a very sort of... Um, it's almost like the high romantic painting, uh, and, and it doesn't it, do, it doesn't feel t like like a kind of very realistic, you know, Call of Duty sort of um, representation. So we went with a 3D, but we tried to pull back um, and soften the edges, and and again give it that sense of um, 
uh, give it the tone that we were uh, we were looking for. <laughs> sure, yeah, but not everybody can go there. Um, and that's actually one of the, you know, sort of great things about games is that um, for those of us who don't live so close, uh, uh, it's, an, it's, you know, you can go in and virtually sort of get that calming sense without going. I, you know, we did actually talk about having a location-based game, but, I mean, logistically, it was just too small an audience. Thanks for the talk. I have short, two short questions. Like, one of them is about the values. So you were talking about the values. You were mm -hmm. talking about the player getting trapped in this, you know, in these mundane tasks. And on the other hand, you said that there wouldn't be any evaluation in the game in the game system of what you're doing. So I was going to ask about like how these values can be built in or whether they are built in. And the other question is, there have been um, some other kind of like art games that also feature like a lot of walking around in the mm -hmm. nature, like mm -hmm. the path and the rest there. So yeah. how would you position your game as opposed to? Oh, I mean, I, I love those guys. I think their work is really interesting. Um, uh, I think that uh, they tend to fall, they tend to push away from more systemic, uh, complex systemic, uh, you know, underlying mechanics, right? So the exploration, absolutely, and the sort of the, the sense of being in a story world, um, I think is very similar. Um, the kind of underlying simulation that we have, I think, is pretty unique in that kind of a world. Um, and to get back to your values, um, uh, yeah, so it's an interesting problem, right? So we're not going to give you arrowheads for um, just working at tasks, right? Uh, but you are surviving, and you, you know, you're, you, you actually, if you plant a bean field and you over-harvest, you can earn money and you go, go into town. You could spend your money, and there's a kind of pleasure in that. Um, so there are things that you can, you can certainly do. We don't keep you from enjoying the world, but you just simply won't write that book. That's, I mean, that's, it's not a punishment. It's just not a reward, right? Yeah, my, my first question for Tracy was going to be uh, what genre <laughs> these games were in. I, I have no idea. Yaroslav just answered that. They're in the lots of walking <laughs> Lots of genre. walking, yeah. Lots of walking, but you can't jump. <laughs> yeah, you can jump, actually. In fact, you can, in fact you, can, you can, if you know what you're doing, you can jump in trees and pick wild apples. Cool. Um, so maybe just the lens through which I view things, but it seemed to me that part, part of what Thoreau is sort of uh, setting up in opposition is sort of the, the, the things that we tell ourselves we have to do versus what I, th he uses the word play, and, and of course I think about play. Do you think, I'm wondering whether there are, as games are evolving, whether there are too many games now that sort of are actually about making us work rather than letting us play. And whether, yeah, isn't it crazy? And whether you think that this is sort of a, an antidote I, to that. I feel that way about some of these Facebook games, yeah. you know, because they're more like work than work. You know, where I work, everybody talks to each other, and, you know, it's like this, this you know, social, like, figuring things out together, and we're leap, always leaping up to the whiteboard and scribbling things out. And then I go back to my desk, and I check my Facebook games, and I'm like... <laughs> so, it, this, I mean, I actually think that 
there is a kind of sense that in, in especially games with the grind, I mean, uh, you know, massively multiplayer games like World of Warcraft is a great example of the you know grind-based games. Um, there is this notion somehow we've we've taken into our leisure the kinds of things we feel that we should be good at in at work, right? So that we're practicing the things that we should be good at. We think we should be good at, at leveling up like our careers and things like this. And even in World of Warcraft at getting people together and organizing them onto complex tasks, you know. Um, I don't know what Facebook games are supposed to be making us good at, but um, apparently it's checking in and, and like, you know, staying on target with like different deadlines. Um, but yes, yeah, so we have sort of brought work into our play. Um, I don't know. Maybe that was somewhere in the back of what I'm thinking. But this 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 game does investigate really, you know, where we, how we value our work, right? What it's what it's supposed to mean to us, right? Because throw is absolutely not against work. I mean, 100% not against work, right? But he is against overwork. Right and and as you say, like he's for questioning why we work, and at what point we should be not working. Right. So you know this is you know very much about. In my mind, we have this grind at the center of our game that we notice when play people play test it, they get very into. They're all like, oh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to chop more wood. I'm going to make sure that I have, oh, I'm going to upgrade this, and I'm going to be able to have more of that. And they get all happy with their grind. They're all happy, right? But until they start to realize that the world is growing dull around them, right? And then there's this moment where they're like, whoa, heads up. There's got to be something else out here, right? And I think that's the epiphany that, or at least one of them, that, that's one of the early epiphanies we're looking for. And we can have one more question. Yeah, I, I think this uh, something got spurred in me by, by Scott's question. I, I, the way I play The Sims, for instance, is very tailoristic and uh, sort of trying to get as much done as quickly as possible. And there's something in that that, <clears throat> that, that I don't feel comfortable with, sort of getting that side of me out. But the way I've reconciled it is that if I get it out here, I don't have to game my life so much. <laughs> uh, you work uh, it out in the sense. Exactly. Yeah. I don't have to gamify my career or whatever <laughs> so, as much. So I'm a little worried that I would play Walden the game the same way. I, I would become very good at this serene, simple living thing, but it would just be... Uh, sort of the fantasy me that would be doing that and I would get it out of my system and I could get back and oh. I would be just sort of grinding know. more in real life. That's <laughs> so. sad. That's a very but sad maybe it's out of, maybe it's Maybe it's okay. Maybe we just, a lot of us I think harbor this I- idea of maybe we, I should just go live in the woods. I mean, I, I'm That's certainly like, with one foot there already. We all but, harbor that, point, yeah. right? I mean, and you know, the truth is, is that uh, even Thoreau's you know, he's just camping in the backyard of the town. I mean, it's yeah. not that far. You know, I mean, he, it's, it's not, he's not going out west, you know. Yeah. And, and so he's living that little dream, too, in, in, a, in a way. And we all, I think it's a very, you know, uh, it's a very iconic thing to, to, to think in your mind. I'm going to take some time at some point in my life to really just do things more simply, yeah. you know. 
So maybe I would feel that it would be a legitimate playing of the game to play it to get that fantasy out of my system, but I'm a little worried you would be angry with me. I don't me. want you to get it out of your system. I just hope it maybe inspires you to want to uh, go out and, and do whatever version of it you can. All right, let's thank Tracy. for. So thanks very much. I know some of you are off to uh, the next CMS event this evening at, uh, at 7. There's a Futures of Entertainment uh, opening event with the Communications Forum, which is in room someone. What's that? E25111.